Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Emma Rice got into the wine business the hard way. She started out working in a pub, then did a spell at Odbins before completing a self-funded BSc in viticulture and enology at Plumpton College. Since 2008, she's been the award-winning winemaker at Hattingley Valley in Hampshire, overseeing a string of brilliant bubblies. Listeners us talk about England's different terroir, what advice she'd give to someone who wants to set up a winery, and what the future holds for the British wine industry. Hello, Emma, how are you? Hi, Tim. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm really well. Um, I know you've had a busy day today, so thanks for joining us. I think you've been worrying about bottling, haven't you? Yeah, we're doing our first bottling of the season starting on Tuesday. The, the, the bottling line arrives from Champagne tomorrow. Uh, so you spent the weekend nurturing yeast um, and you know stroking them, making sure they're okay, ready for the, to go into the bottle with the wine on, on Tuesday. Uh, I see. I mean, that's a pretty stressful time of year for you, isn't it? A bit like, I mean, harvest time must be the other stressful time for a winemaker. Bottling is probably the the most stressful. Harvest is exciting, exhilarating. Bottling is just one of those jobs that needs to be done really, really well, really, really carefully. And uh, someone said to me once, preferably by somebody else. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we've got to do it ourselves. But <laughs> no, because I mean, you. I mean, after all that work, you know, in the vineyard, and then particularly with with with, with sparkling wines, you know, there's a lot of work goes on in the cellar as well. Lots of things. If you, if something goes wrong right at the last minute, it must be a disaster. Uh, yes, it can prove very expensive if you don't get this bit right um, and also quite embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, you're a brilliant winemaker, so I've got every confidence in you. I think you're very <laughs> methodical as well as extremely talented. And I think you probably have to be as a sparkling winemaker. Don't you? You've really got to make sure you're ticking all of the right boxes. Yeah, so there's a there's a winemaking in any winemaking is both an art and a science, but when it comes to sparkling winemaking, at this point, bottling, you have to follow the recipe because if you don't, it won't work. So there yeah. are certain parameters which restrict your the ability for the yeast to work in the bottle. And if you don't respect those, then you'll you'll have a problem later on. So yeah, it's um you have to be very, very methodical and have everything ready to go, you know, because if you run out of bottles or you something goes wrong during the during the bottling, you've got the yeast in the tank and it's mixing, you can't just stop. You have yeah. to you know, we've, we've been in the wineries till 10, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, carrying on bottling just because we had to, because once the yeast is in, that's it, you've got to go. So this is basically the secondary fermentation, or the second fermentation that's going to happen inside the bottle? Yes. So you're dealing yeah. with a wine that's high alcohol, it's got some SO2 in it, it's still very low pH, the temperature, particularly at this time of year, it's quite cool. So you know, everything is conspiring against you, for, against the yeast from working. Um, so you have to literally coddle them, um, make sure they are as robust and as strong and as accustomed to the, mm. to the wine that you're going to put them in um, as, as far as possible. Yeah, you're giving them a little hug, really. Yeah, yeah. so there's a lot that you, you actually use your fingers to, to, to massage the yeast. That's what I was doing this morning. Oh, so you, you'd literally give them a little hug or a little, a little, a little fondle. A, a little really. massage. A little, <laughs> a little massage. I like that. 
<laughs> Listen, lots of stuff I want to ask you about, but I want to begin with with how you got into all this. And uh, every interview I've read with you mentions this, you know, taste of a, of a double magnum of Krug 1979 as your kind of eureka moment. Can you just tell us a bit more about the circumstances? Because you were working in a pub, weren't you? Yeah, well, it, it was a pub, the village pub where I grew up. I'd been there since I was 15. And that's what I started to get interested in wine, having seen people drinking you know, amazing bottles of wine. Um, it, it was more than a pub, though. It was a bit of a destination restaurant. It had a very, very extensive wine list. The the owner of the restaurant, Barry Phillips, um, is a wine trade stalwart. <laughs> um, very classic list. Um, he had been there 25 years, and he was having a 25th anniversary dinner. Uh, this was back in 1990, early 95. I can't remember quite. I think it was January 95. And he had invited the great and good of the wine trade down to uh, Chilgrove, this tiny little village in Sussex where I grew up. And uh, he'd asked me to be the, the wine waiter for the evening. Wouldn't call myself a sommelier at the time. but I was charged with serving serving the wine. And some of the guests that walked through the door were Jancis Robinson, Hugh Johnson, Michael Broadbent, Charles Metcalf. I mean, and that, the list went on. So it was, and I was already getting very interested in wine at that point. So that I was sort of a bit starstruck. And I think I, I rushed home, got my 1994 first edition of the Oxford Companion to Wine, and Jancis signed it for me. <laughs> oh, well, you went back, did you? I went there. Yeah, I only lived to. A couple of hundred oh. yards up the road. So. <laughs> so it's just luck that you happen to happen to be to grow up next door to the White Horse, recently. Well, exactly. A pure yeah. pure chance. Yeah. I mean, I think that happens to lots of people in the wine trade that you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, or you meet somebody or whatever. But I mean, you you, you like many people in the wine business from there. You know, you started off in this pub and you started working in Obbins. I think you were in the Chichester branch, right? which is nearby. I just wondered. Do you think all winemakers should do a little spell in retail? I mean, I wonder whether wine journalists should as well to find out what the public actually want to drink. I don't think it would do anyone any harm to get a bit of experience in in as many aspects of the trade as possible, to be honest. Uh, It gave me a valuable insight because I'd gone from working in this high-end restaurant where people were drinking Mouton Rothschild and Chateau Le Tour and Ikem and these fantastic uh, Grand Cru Burgundies and Champagnes to working in Oddbins where we were dealing with, you know, t- back in the 90s, 299 mm. Portuguese reds and mm. Australian wines. And so my horizons were hugely expanded by by being there um, for about a year I was there. So, yes, yeah. I definitely think so. I mean, before you got your current job at Hattingley Valley, you also, I noticed, worked in book publishing and journalism. That must have been a mistake. I mean, did you ever consider becoming a full-time wine writer or did the low pay rates put you off? Uh, well, <laughs> I was I was an editor rather than a writer mainly. Um, I did uh, I've done a little bit of writing since, but not a huge amount. Um, I did enjoy it. It was great fun, uh, I, and I would have loved to have become a wine writer because sit, I was sitting in a you know glass and steel box in Canary Wharf in London, reading about all the, and seeing the pictures coming back from these writers who'd been out to the most fantastic places in South America or you know, the US, all over the world. And uh, I just got to to uh, correct their mistakes and <laughs> lots of those <laughs> try, and, try and reduce the the waffle slightly. <laughs> I know it's. It, I mean, it's always a good. I mean, all all writers need editors. They really do. I mean, you know. And I think as 
you know, they're, they're essential, really. I mean, whoever the writer is, I'm sure that there are presumably some people, I don't know, who are so good that they never need editing, but I don't think I've met that person. Well, I can, I can say Hugh Johnson did write absolutely beautifully and there was mm. not much, uh, he, and he'd been doing it for years and years, there wasn't much you needed to cut out of his, uh, yeah. there, was, there was very little waffle and uh, yeah. he wrote beautifully. Um, he was, he was the, the main writer I was editing. So well, lucky I'll, you. I'll, uh, take my hat <laughs> off to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I mean, and lovely to read as well. I mean, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. What made you decide to do the BSc in viticulture and enology at Plumpton College in the UK? I mean, I, I was intrigued to see that you weren't very good at science at school because I wasn't either. I, I struggled to get a C in <laughs> physics with chemistry O level. I was so bad that, that I, they wouldn't even let me see chemistry on its own. Uh, what made you decide, hey, I'm going to become a winemaker? Well, I, I had exactly the same experience. I think I, I, I was one of the first to do GCSEs and I wasn't allowed to do the separate sciences. I had to do the general certificate and I scraped to C, I believe. No, no, I think I got D's actually in science. I got D's. So I didn't even get the C part. (laughs) Anyway, so it wasn't, it it didn't inspire me at the time. Um, But what made me want to become a winemaker was reading in Hugh Johnson's pocket wine book for three years on the trot about Plumpton College down in Sussex mm. doing these winemaking courses. And, and until that point, I had no idea that you could study winemaking in the UK. I'd done, some, mm. I'd done my WSET diploma and certificates and things at the time, but I had no idea that it was even a, an option. Um, it certainly wasn't when I was 18, but by mm. the time I came around, I was 29, um, I just thought, sorry, I'm going to apply. And I did, and I left London, moved to Brighton, and um, the rest is history. Yeah, it was a pretty bold move then, wasn't it? I mean, you know, it's, it's not cheap, these things. I and mean, did you go on working while you were doing it? I did. Um, well, it was two to three days a week in in college, either lectures mm. or working in the vineyard or working in the winery at, at Plumpton. Uh, and I carried on working. I carried on doing some freelance editing work. Um, I actually did write an English section on uh, the book called... Um, Oh, God, the wine opus. It was a Dorling Kindersley book. Um, I worked in retail shops in Brighton. <laughs> I worked on Night Timber Vineyard. So I, because I found going down to, you know, temporary, it felt like part time. Mm. Um, so I just carried on. I carried on doing quite a lot of extra work as well. But of mm. course, back then in 19, uh, 2003, it wasn't as expensive as it is now. It was a thousand pounds a year for the fees. So looking back, if I was to do it now, Looking at the cost, which is what I don't know, seven, eight thousand pounds a year just on the hmm. tuition, that would be that would be a bigger, a bigger, more difficult decision to make. Yeah, it's a bit like doing the MW. I know you've done part of it, haven't you? I don't know whether you're going to go back and carry on, but I mean that's also expensive stuff these days. Yeah, I did the first year, uh, and Hattingley actually paid for me to do that first year of the MW. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I met some fantastic people who are still friends today. But I, at the same time, I was about to embark on the second year. I started the second year. Um, Hattingley was just starting to take off at that mm. point, and it was really getting busy. I just could not do both of them justice. Yeah. So, and also it was, it got to the point where I was, it was starting to the tasting, the pressure on tasting was starting to take the fun out of mine for me. Yes, um, I know the I, I, I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after you graduated from Plumpton, you know, you're one of the first six people to do so, which is amazing. 
you went to the Napa Valley and you went to work at Cubizon. Now, um, I don't know if John Thatcher was still there when you got there, was he? I mean, he certainly had been yeah. in the old days. Amazing guy. I just wonder, were you tempted to stay? I mean, it's such an amazing place, the Napa Valley. I, I would have stayed, yes. I, I went for three months initially to do the mm. harvest. Um, and I, when I the, the day I arrived, I got taken to the winery, shown the laboratory where I was going to be the uh, lab assistant for the harvest. And they said, oh, well, the enologist, he left last week, which is a big no-no in the wine industry to leave just before harvest. Um, and we can't find anyone else. So you are now the enologist. Wow. <laughs> this is your laboratory. We've got a thousand tons of fruit coming in. We're working with 12 different winemakers. Um, and there you go. This, this is your little world, um, your kingdom. <laughs> so I've, I had no idea what was coming my way. And I ended up staying for two years, which was as long as I could extend my visa at the time. Hmm. Um, and they offered me the chance to stay on. I would have jumped at that if I could have got the visa. But it, logistics timing wasn't quite right in, in order to get the right mm. to apply for the right visa. So I had to make a decision um, to either sort of go away and come back and try and apply the following year. Of course, who knows what would have happened or mm. just I had to move on. So that's what I did. I moved yeah. On. So California's loss was the English wine industry's gain, really? Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that was <laughs> good, wasn't it? And you also worked at, at Tamar Ridge, didn't you, in Tasmania for a while. I, mean, I just wondered, do you think it's important for winemakers, especially English ones, to gain overseas experience and not just focus on what's going on here? Definitely. I think any winemaker who never, ever experiences winemaking um, in another region or another country is is going to be limited into is as to what into into the innovation that they're going to be able to to bring to their to their own winemaking. Mm. I think it's um it's very easy to be insular, particularly in some of those the, the more traditional regions like Champagne, yes. Bordeaux, that you can move around. There's lots of wineries. You don't need to be go mm. abroad, but I think it. Uh, it brings us it brings huge advantage to the winery you work for and mm. actually at Hattony we've, we've sent our junior winemakers off to do vintages in South Africa in Spain in New Zealand mm. um all over the all over the world um, I think it's it's absolutely vital yeah. and how did you get the job at Hattingley <laughs> well it's who you know isn't it it's who you know and timing um I came back from Tasmania uh, with a view to regrouping, packing another suitcase and going back to Australia. I actually had a five-year visa for Australia. But when I got back here to England in 2008, early, well, sort of mid-2008, um, I, I got lots of friends who I'd been at college with uh, over the years who were working in the English industry and having met up with them, kept caught up with them. It was just became very apparent very quickly that the English industry was vibrant, growing, huge opportunities um, and my thought process was I go back to Australia I'd be a very very small fish in a huge pond mm. it would take me years to to work my way up to anything whereas in England there was an opportunity to be a it's a very small pond mm. even smaller than it is now uh, and there was an opportunity to therefore be a slightly bigger fish so I decided to stay yeah. I mean, tell us a little bit about the about the site. What makes it special as a site? I mean, how many hectares do you have? Tell us a little bit about, about the terroir. Well, the, the Hattingley vineyards, we've got two of them. The first one was planted in 2008, had just been planted before I met Simon Robinson. Um, 
and it's on a south-facing slope in the northwestern corner of the South Downs, what is now the South Downs National Park, uh, on that big escarpment of chalk, which runs mm. from essentially Winchester all the way to the White Cliffs of Dover. So it's it's quite exposed. It's a little bit high uh, for England, for England really. Um, it's about we got seven and a half hectares planted on that original site, and then we planted another four a few years later. But I think what struck me quite early on is that the grapes from that vineyard are extremely high quality. They're, the flavour profile is insane. It's amazing. It, they nearly always go into our King's Cuvée, yeah. our prestige cuvée, but they're tiny yields. So commercially, as a sustainable, commercially sustainable vineyard by itself uh, is was never going to be what Hattingley is today. So I recognised quite early on that although the quality was exceptional, I wasn't going to get the quantity in order to give me a full-time job. So I started <laughs> looking further afield for, for grapes. Because, you, I mean, you buy, you buy from growers, don't you, in, in other counties, not just in Hampshire where you guys are. I just wonder how, how, how much they, they vary. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this will think, oh, English wine, you know, the climate's the same in Essex as it is in Cornwall, as it is in Surrey, as it is in Hampshire. And obviously they're, they're very different. The soil types are different and sunshine hours are different, rainfall, all those sorts of things. Is that what you're doing? Is that why you're buying from these different sites? Well, yes, it's to ameliorate the risk because, mm. you know, the, the weather is very different in Hampshire compared to Kent and Essex. There's a reason why Kent is called the Garden of England. You know, that's mm. where they, all the, the really good top fruits grown. And mm. uh, Essex is incredibly rich soils for arable, lovely flat land. You know, it's, um, it's, they're incredibly different and it's very dry up in Essex as well. They have, their rainfall is a lot lower. Sunshine hours are a lot higher. And when you're working in a marginal climate like England is, those little differences make all the difference. Mm. You know, if you, so when a, a year where we might get frost in Hampshire, you might, the, the vineyards in Essex won't be hit by frost, uh, whereas, you know, and, and vice versa, sometimes it works the other way around. Mm. What it also allows us to do is um, extend our pressing capacity in the winery. So we've got this incredibly expensive set up in the winery the mm. presses that are generally only used for a few weeks of the year mm. we can expand extend that time from the first fruit coming in from Essex and Kent in end of September through to the last fruit coming in from Hampshire Berkshire uh sometimes into the first week of November so we are mm. we are able to process a whole lot more and I have a whole lot more choice in the winery when it comes to blending so mm. this is the, this time of year we're doing the blending and starting bottling obviously yeah uh, and just having those that choice of uh, fruit and the different styles is you know it gives me a, an incredible palette of parcels to work from yeah interesting i mean you also run a, a custom crush winery for other producers as if you're not busy enough already uh, i just how much of your time is, is is spent on that on making wine for other people to start with, it was probably 50-50, um, and now then it, it's eased to sort of two-thirds Hattingly, one-third client. Now it's more uh, 75%, three-quarters Hattingly, and we're gradually reducing down the number of client wines that we make so we can concentrate on our own. But um, we'll always have an element of client wines in the winery because one of the ways that we source fruit is by what we call a swap deal. We'll take all of the fruit from a vineyard, We'll keep some of it for our fruit, for our wine. We'll make some of it for them. 
uh, no money changes hands. So it's a, a capital. It's a, in terms of capital, it's great for them and for us. Mm. They do, we offset the growing risk as well mm. slightly because we've we you know invested a huge amount of money in even winemaking equipment. Mm. Um, and so it's a fantastic way of making sure we get high quality fruit because the grower is just as invested as we are in them mm. making sure the fruit is good. Interesting. And then presumably you discover new vineyards that way that people come to see you and you think, oh, this is good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It opens yeah. up a whole different uh, world of uh, supply. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about your awards. I mean, I, I've lost count of the amount of awards you won, both personally and and for the wines as well. I just wonder, you know, after this time, you're a very established figure uh, in the English wine industry. Are, are those is that recognition still important? Do you still get a bit of a thrill when you think, hey, my wine's just beaten champagnes, or I've just won winemaker of the year again? I do. It, it is a big thrill, and it's it, it's great recognition for the team as well because mm. you know I, I don't do I don't do this as a, an individual. There's a there's a team behind me as well who, mm. who are beavering away doing the, the really hard work. And it uh, there are certain competitions which, as winemakers, we really really look out for and want mm. to see what the where you know where we stand against mm. others in the wine the spark particularly sparkling wine world. Um, it and yes, you do get a thrill, especially when you beat some of the best champagnes. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody who says you don't get a thrill is lying, don't you think? I mean, you know, people are bored of awards. I mean, come on, man, everybody wants to win an award, don't you think? Uh, Every winemaker's got a bit of an ego, otherwise you wouldn't yeah. be a winemaker. Exactly. Um, and, of course, they love to have their ego fed, me included. <laughs> <laughs> Say things to journalists, I promise you. Um, let's talk a little bit about still wines, because most of the praise for English wine is focused on sparkling wines. I think that, that, that most consumers associate England with sparkling wines, uh, certainly in terms of the top echelons of the wines. You also make very good still wines. I just wonder, with these warmer growing seasons most of the time in England, do you think that the still wines are going to get to the point where they achieve the same world-class quality as the sparkling wines? And if so, with which grapes are we going to do it? Oh, tricky question. I We've only done it in the last couple of years. 2019 was our first attempt at a still rosé from Pinot Noir Precoce. 2020 presented us with the opportunity to make a red Pinot Noir, a still Chardonnay and the still rosé because I don't know if you remember, it was about this time two years ago when we'd just gone into lockdown. Mm. The only saving grace, the only silver lining to that was that the weather was fantastic mm. and it carried on for the entire summer. Hot temperatures, dry, very little rain or rain just at the right times. And we had the most amazing harvest in 2020, mm. which allowed us to, it allowed me, as far as I was concerned, to, to attempt to make these different still wines. Um, 2021 was a slightly different story. We made a, a small amount of the rosé, yeah. but we have not made Pinot Noir Red or Chardonnay in a, as, as a still wine. Just the, the harvest conditions did not give us grapes that could do that. We've made some fantastic sparkling base wines, but we are not making still wine. Um, and the still wines that we have made have all come from Kent or Essex. Right, So yeah. And that's Interesting. that's the difference. I think Essex, Essex is probably one of the later counties to the party, mm. but they are really proving themselves up there with uh, how they can ripen the fruit and the yields they can get re mm. and reliably ripen it. So it's it's definitely um, a different 
a whole different ball game up there in Essex. Yeah, it's inter- it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, who would believe? Who would have imagined that Essex would be such an amazing place to grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay? You know, I mean, it it, it really is, isn't it? It is fantastic, and I think there are some producers up there who are really, really making some fantastic wines, and will continue yeah. to do so. Especially Danbury Ridge, I think what they're doing is really very exciting, isn't it? Yes, exactly. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I just wondered whether you've ever worked in Champagne. You know, you were talking about the bottling machine arriving from Champagne. I know you go there a lot. You've worked with with the Champenois. You know, I think you've even made some wine, haven't you, for for a Champagne house in England. Have you ever actually worked in Champagne? Not not strictly, no. I used to be the agent for the uh, Institut Enologique de Champagne, which is a big laboratory in Champagne, and they sell yeast which is the, the champagne yeast, which majority of champagne houses and sparkling winemakers use. Uh, so I used to go out there every harvest and shadow the enologist from, from the IOC uh, in the Marne Valley, which is where I got my, a bit of a love for Pinot Manier by doing that. Um, <laughs> but I've never actually worked in a winery, no. yeah. not in champagne. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, that I think, Certainly in the past, I don't know whether this is still true, the English wineries used to measure themselves against champagne and say, hey, we're as good as champagne or we beat champagne. Do you think those comparisons with, with champagne are still relevant? Or we got to the point now where we can be proud of what we do and don't have to compare ourselves with somebody else to say, hey, we're, we're worth something? I think it's inevitable that it will happen, particularly as we go into new markets in the export mm. side of the business, is that people, we're, we're at the same price. As most champagnes, we are made from the same varieties. We're made in the same way. It's inevitable. You can't get away from it. But I I would say you know, we're incredibly proud of making our, our tagline is unapologetic British sparkling wines. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it's difficult to move away from that. You know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was originally compared to the Loire. Yeah. Anyone, you know, Western Australian Chardonnays are directly compared to White Burgundy. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't get away from it. It's, people will always compare to the classic mm-hmm. regions, particularly the French classic regions. So you just have to accept that, um, but keep keep ramming home the, the the message that you know these are uniquely British English yeah. wines, and uh, mm-hmm. they they are slightly different, um, and we're doing things a bit differently here. I mean, people sometimes get confused, don't they, particularly outside the country, about English and Welsh, you know, wines on one hand and British wines on the other on the other hand. And you've talked about unapologetically British. I mean, how do you explain the difference to people? Because they are different things, aren't they? British wine is a sector all of its own, which is is not always that appetising to drink, I'd have to say. <laughs> Whereas English wine uh, is very different, isn't it? Well, you know, I think Wine GB is doing all it can to reclaim the freight, the term British wine to apply to truly British wines rather than the, the, the sort of the syrupy, low alcohol product that comes into the country on the bottom shelf of the supermarket. Mm-hmm. But in England, to be honest, I don't think most consumers really distinguish. So there's always that danger that they will buy a bottle of British wine, yeah. use it for English wine mm-hmm. in the export markets. It's less of, actually less of a problem because those British wines don't exist in the export markets. They're not allowed to be exported out of the UK. And, uh, you know, the, the, the British heritage countries like the US, the Australia, etc., they, um, 
they they see us as British. They don't necessarily see us as English, and particularly mm. the Australians. I think so. One of our importer out there once said that the, you know the British are our cousins. There are um, our mother might have come from Britain, but the English are the bastards that beat us at cricket and rugby. So that, that's the <laughs> not thing. not so often these days. It has to be said. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Yes, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because British wine, you know, British British wine is British made wine in the sense that it's often made with 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 what what with with grape juice, refermented grape juice, grape must, isn't it? Basically, yeah, grape concentrate or sus reserve mm. from coming in from all anywhere in Europe, and it's fermented out to put a you know eight percent alcohol with a huge residual sugar, and it's just yeah, it's not um, it's not a proper wine to be honest. <laughs> yeah, as you said, bottom shelf stuff. Yes, definitely, like two ninety nine, three ninety nine on the bottom shelf of the supermarket. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Do you think we need a generic term for English fizz like Cap Classique in South Africa? Well, it would make it a whole lot easier for us to protect the the term and the methodology of make of making the wine if we had something that didn't say England or English because that's such a generic term; it's almost impossible to protect. Um, but if we try and force it. On the consumer without having the, the budget, the marketing budget to to back it up, I don't think it will work. You know, Champagne, Cava, Prosecco—they evolved those those terms. They evolved with the regions over you know generations. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly difficult to uh, find something that a the whole industry would agree on, and b then to be able to back it up with the marketing budget. Because I don't think most consumers in the UK are aware that Cap Classique is a particular designation of sparkling wine from South Africa. Um, you know, the more educated consumer will know, but your average person neither knows nor cares, I would have thought. Yeah, no, I, I think you're probably right. I want to talk a little bit more about the the, the sort of financing of, of, of setting up wineries and what an expensive business it is. It's interesting that I noticed in 2012, you co-authored a book entitled The Wine Grower's Handbook, A Guide to Setting Up a Vineyard and Winery in the UK. I just wondered, What's the most important piece of advice you'd give someone who's thinking of doing just that? I mean, are you surprised by how naive people can be, even successful ones in other walks of life, can be about just how much investment it involves? Uh, Yes, I'm constantly (laughs) surprised by the naivety. Um, Everyone has this romantic dream of what a vineyard is, um, what it is to have a vineyard. In actual fact, particularly in the UK, it's damn hard work um, and very risky as well. You're not going to make your fortune at it. So certainly not in a hurry anyway. I'd say the most important advice I would give people is before you even think about planting a vineyard or building a winery, making any wine, is work out where you're going to sell it. Because if you can't sell it, then there's no point in planting. Um, the number of people I've spoken to who have planted, you know, 10, 10 acres of grapes uh, and then the realization hits them five years later that they're going to get 30 tons of fruit off that on an average year and 30 tons of fruit is you know 25,000 bottles um that's difficult to sell out of the garage door mm. the cellar door unless you really really have time and effort and money to invest in in the marketing of it so i'd say work out where you're going to sell it how you're going to sell it before you even think about planting and do people very often plant in the wrong place? I mean, or are people a bit more careful now about making sure that they just plant in the back garden? They're actually thinking about the site. Um, yes, I hope so. And there are uh, vineyard consultants, viticultural consultants, who will hopefully uh, do their best to put people off if they haven't got a suitable <laughs> site. 
But there are others, other people out there who will plant. They they want to plant. They want to plant on their own land, and they will do it regardless whether mm. it's a good idea or not. And you, there's no helping those people. Yeah, and they're probably not going to make the best wines unless they do it by by accident, which doesn't happen very often, does it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's the thing people don't realise. You know that that just how much preparation goes into setting up a winery. I mean, you designed your winery, um, you know, the Hattingley Valley Winery from scratch, didn't you? So you knew exactly what you wanted in the winery. But I think a lot of people don't even do that, well, especially don't do that. No, well, even Hattingley, we evolved over time. We, we never planned to be as big as we are. So we, we luckily we had the, the size of the building was that was such that we could expand. Uh, but, you know, originally we were going to rent out half the buildings to other rural businesses, but we never got to that. We, we ended up putting tanks in every square space but yeah. you know if you if you, the ideal would be you know where you want to end up in terms of volume and sales and then you work back from that whereas most yeah. a lot of english wineries have evolved over time um, which is it, which is exciting and it's great and you've got to be able to to adapt and change and move with the times but um it's yeah it's it, a never-ending pit of money <laughs> <laughs> and how do you see the industry developing over the next 20 years. I mean, it's expanded pretty quickly, hasn't it? You know, exponentially, really. Um, is it going to expand at the current rate? Will there be a degree of consolidation where some of those people who've maybe not planted in the right place or that can't sell the wine fall out of the industry or get taken over? It doesn't see, show any signs of slowing down just at the moment. There's still an awful lot of land in the, in the southeast of England, which is suitable for planting. Uh, so, you know, we could be, we could see this expansion carry on for a few quite a few more years, if not decades. Um, I think there will be a reckoning at some point with those people who, maybe they've got a great site, maybe they're making some great wine, but they just don't know how to sell it. And so they end up, maybe those ones will be consolidated into the more successful commercial enterprises. Um, and there'll be more and more outside investment coming in. I think you've seen it with Bolney Estate being um, bought out by Frigenet or Hen Henkel, the, the big uh, German sparkling wine producer. So I think things like that will will happen more and more. Um, more champagne houses may start to take an interest as well, but uh, there, there will be some casualties of this. It's like the gold rush. You know, it's, mm. Some people will succeed and some people will fail terribly. Um, and it's not necessarily because their vineyard's in the wrong place. It's just because they don't know how to commercialise it. it. It's very interesting that, that you can make very good wine, but as you said at the beginning, if you don't have an end consumer or set of end consumers in mind, um, you're kind of wasting your time, aren't you? Exactly. You've got to be able to sell it. Otherwise, there's no point making it. <laughs> yeah. It, is there anywhere else in the world you'd like to make wine? You've got a very busy job. Um, do you suddenly suddenly think, oh, God, you know, I'd love to make Barolo or I'd love to you know, make Shiraz or something like that? Uh, no, I've not. No. I, I mean, I I would love to have a go at make, you know, I don't think I'd want to have the responsibility for it, but to go and work in a, in a, in a Grand Cru, Burgundy, red Burgundy vineyard, you know, Pinot, growing Pinot Noir. Um, but one place I have thought I would like to go, it's back to California, but to Sonoma, making sparkling wine from Sonoma Coast, the really cool climate areas of the Sonoma Coast. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I and think I'd well, love to have a go at that. if anybody's listening, give Emma a call. Right? Yeah, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. I just want to know how you get away from wine and what are your other interests? 
Um, it is hard. And I have to say, I've spent a lot of the last 14, 15 years since I started at Hattingley, 14 years, being doing nothing but work <laughs> um, and nothing but wine. But more recently, I've got back into music. So I, I sing in a choir. Um, we, uh, that's a fantastic way to escape because mm. the concentration required um, and the, the the joy of singing in a, in a big group um, is fantastic. And I love that. And I, I'm playing my, I play the cello as well um, and classical guitar. So I, I've retaken that, those up in my uh, in my 40s, late 40s, to uh, to start learning those again. Fantastic. Challenging, challenging. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a lovely way to end. Bit of music, fantastic. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your knowledge uh, and your insights into the English wine industry. Emma, it's been fascinating talking to you and see you soon, I hope. Well, thank you for having me. What a star Emma is. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Master of Wine, Nova Kadamatre from Trestle 31 Winery in the United States. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at timatkin, and on Instagram, at timatkinmw. See you next week.